So this morning, we're going to talk about this idea of atonement, of, of atonement. And as we hear that word, a lot of times in, in, in our culture, it's a lot of times related to and kind of acknowledged with uh, church atmosphere, biblical concepts, theology, that type of thing, and doctrine. Uh, but the word atonement is, is really kind of made up of, of this idea and it kind of broken up where the word atonement, view atonement, can mean at one meant or at one with, that the action of atoning is meant to bring back together something that was broken or something that was separated. And, and for us, a lot of times, and for me, the challenge in my own heart and mind as I come and worship and as I read God's word and as we teach and as we worship and those type of things is do I really live my life or do we really live our lives in a way where we understand or believe or truly embrace this idea of atonement and what God has done for us because, you know, in the beginning, in God's uh, beautiful creation, the greatest gift that God gave mankind was he gave us the freedom to choose. He gave, the greatest blessing God gave man was freedom, freedom to make decisions, freedom to choose, freedom to worship, freedom to obey. But within that freedom, sin entered the world. And as sin entered the world, things changed because as sin entered the world, then we as human beings, we began as image bearers, began to abuse that freedom that God had given us. We began to take the good things of God and pervert those things and turn those things into things that satisfied us, that made us happy. And those things were, became what we depended on. Those things, even in our lives today, have become things that we rest in, that we put all our hope in, that we put our identity in, that we put our, our, our trust in, and that is become, began to move our focus away from God. You know, last week we talked about what it meant in the last of the Lord's prayer uh, to lead me not into, to, to, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so we talked about sin a little bit last week, but I really want us to lean into this idea this morning of what it means uh, that Christ atoned for us. Because as we look at the scope of every major kind of theistic religion, I say a theistic religion, religions that believe in one God, as we look at all the religions in the world that, that believe in one God, this is the thing, the atonement is the thing that sets Christianity apart from all those other religions. Uh, you know, because their idea of atonement or how they uh, get closer to their God or grow in their God or, in, or grow in kind of the spiritual nature of who they are is different than how we do it. You know, in Judaism or the Jewish faith, one can atone for their wrongs by changing their behavior, by praying and by doing good deeds. You know, in Islam, we, you can move uh, towards paradise by performing the five pillars. And those five pillars are testify that none has the right to be worshipped by Allah and Muhammad as messenger. Offering prayer five times a day, giving alms, money or food or charity. Uh, going on a pilgrimage and fasting in the month of Ramadan. Uh, in Hinduism, uh, if we store up enough good karma or do enough good things, we will experience nirvana or this kind of spiritual awakening by uniting with Brahman, the universal God, the, the deity that they worship. And in Buddhism, uh, we can, and this is a little different uh, because they don't acknowledge a deity, but they acknowledge kind of the self. And so I would say this is kind of the, the religion of self or the, the, the humanistic kind of elevating of ourself as gods where they, we can, en, they can enlighten and discipline themselves into nirvana by practicing the eightfold path. And that's right understanding, right intent, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And so as we hear those things, I think we can equate, we can see where remnants of that is within our faith, right? I mean, 
we want right understanding. We want to live right. We want to do good by other people. We want to worship the one and only God because he's worthy of worship. You know, and so all of those things, you can see where a lot of people would say, well, you know, there's all these different paths to God. We're all going towards the same God. And in a sense, I love how Ravi Zacharias explained this one time that I heard it. He said, all of the religions in the world, the, the theistic religions that believe in a, a one singular God, are kind of like individuals standing in a movie theater, staring at the back wall, watching a light project out. Like we understand there's something there. We understand that something is happening and we're tr- they're trying to make sense of it. But by staring at the back wall, only seeing the light project out of the back, they're not seeing the projection, the picture of what's being presented. And for us, we understand that that projection, what God has made clear as his image and his nature and his character is in Jesus Christ. And so we as Christians, we know that maybe in a sense we are all looking towards the same God, trying to make sense of the same God. But our Bible tells us, God has told us in in his revealed word that there is only one way, that there is one way to the Father, and that's through Christ, that he is the projection of the image of God that is drawing us into his goodness, that is drawing us into an understanding of who he is. You know, the word crucial The word crucial is derived from the Latin word cross. You know, and for us in in, in this church, you know, one of the verses that's kind of at the pinnacle of our uh, of our of our church and where we kind of were birthed from is is second uh, first Corinthians two two says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because Paul understood that this is the most crucial moment in religious history when Jesus died on the cross because something happened that has not happened in any other religion, that has not happened in any other understanding of spiritual growth or nature or even this idea of atonement. Uh, Nothing in this sense has happened except in Christianity where the deity, the God himself, put on flesh... You know, and there's a little bit of Trinitarian understanding we have to take into this, but that's another message for another day, where Jesus, in the essence of God, put on human flesh, came and died, atoned for sin, because every other religion in the world atones for their sin based off of how their actions are. If they're good enough, are they earning it? Are they doing these things and moving themselves closer in all the other ones except, uh, except for Buddhism, where they're just trying to elevate themselves, getting themselves to this point? But... You know, every other religion in the world is trying to make sense out of getting close to God by earning it, by getting there by their own work, by their own power. You know, and I love whenever Moses is talking about the law, he says in Exodus 34, 7, he says, talking about God, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Who will by no means clear the guilty? Because what he's helping us understand and reminding us of is that our sin is an offense against a holy God because God is holy. God is, is, but God is also just. And that if there is a wrong that has been committed, then justice is required. And then if our God is a, the, the very essence of justice, if he uh, executes justice, then for God to not act justly would be against his nature. And so justice requires action and a wage to be satisfied. So if there is an offense, then the just thing to happen is for something to be given, to pay this due, to pay this penalty that has happened. And so where there is sin, the wrath of God can never be turned away because God is holy, loving God, but he is a just God. But within that, 
If we've read it all the Old Testament, you know, uh, a year or two ago, we went through a study where we talked about the, uh, the, the, the festivals and the feast of the Hebrew people. And one of those is the Day of Atonement. And that's in light of a system that God had given them because we serve a merciful God. Because we serve a merciful God that even though man is sinful, that even though man has, has done things in direct rebellion against God, God still provided us a way to transfer that punishment away from ourselves. You know, and so what he created was God created a system to make atonement for our sins. And Leviticus is the place where we see this fleshed out the most. Uh, in Leviticus 17, 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on an altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. Because church, remember, the Bible tells us in Romans 3 that the wages of sin is death. And so if life is found in the blood, what God has provided in, in this giving, this sacrifice where blood is spilled in order for wages of sin to be played, paid, blood is required because in blood there is life. And so that life is transferred to those who have death, those who have committed sin, the image bearers who have, who have, uh, who have sinned against the holy God. God gave this system to image bearers to be reconciled before God, to be brought back before a holy God. So priests would come every year on behalf of the people and they would bring a goat a calf a ram and they would sacrifice on an altar to cover the sinner to make a penalty for the payment and so it would transfer this penalty from the image bearer to the animal you know and god is holy and that is bringing wrath on sin because but because he is merciful he created this system and listen, there is no atonement that can happen separate from this type of system because God established it, because God is a holy, just God, and sin has to be punished. Sin has to be dealt with because he is holy and loving, but he, and he is merciful, so he has given us this, uh, this system. And to function outside of that system is to be taking things in our own hands and doing things our own way. And sin, if we understand it correctly, is a rebellion against God. And Romans 14, 23 tells us, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so what does that mean for us? It means anything we do separate from faith in Jesus Christ, even if it's the best thing among the best people, is still sin. Because what it's going to be tainted with is it's going to be tainted with selfishness. It's going to be tainted with self-awareness. It's going to be tainted with this self-exalting uh, idea because it's, it's always going to have our interest in mind. And so if, if what we do is not proceeding from faith in Jesus, it's sin. Whatever man does or thinks which is not an, or an act or thought coming from faith in God and guided by God is sin because it is preceding from this place of self-interest, self-governing, and self-exalting. And so there are two things that we have to understand about atonement as we kind of move forward that I hope that we can really, you know, there's, we could spend two hours talking about this. But if we can kind of condense it down and see what God wants us to see in the midst of this, in these verses that we'll read, I pray that it can be a blessing. And I pray that it can be a challenge in a, in a place at which we step and move forward from in our Christian life. So the first thing that we have to understand to really understand atonement is where our atonement fails, where self-atonement fails, where me, Jake, trying to close the gap between myself and God fails. And so we'll read in Hebrews chapter 10 let's start in verse 11 and it says this and it says and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins so i hope we can see those words those these three words that are underlined together daily repeatedly and never 
You know, these are the most religious people in that kind of time were the priests. But in a lot of ways, we can step even back from that and see ourselves in that place, that Jake could stand daily, repeatedly offering what I have to offer for the forgiveness of my sins, and, and it says they can never take away our sins. You know, because what they would do is they would have to come year after year after year after year to make up and, and pay atonement for the sins of the people on their behalf. And in Romans, uh, Hebrews 10, 3, kind of before this, it tells us, it says, but these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, that the sins were never truly gone, that the penalty for those sins stuck around, that there's nothing that they did that ever completely got rid of them, that it only covered those sins until they would come back. And when we say sins, we're not talking about the, uh, the influence of sin, because it influences sin is always going to be there. But the eternal effects of sin is what I'm talking about, where the eternal effects of sin were constantly coming back, that as they would remove the barrier between them and God, that, that their sin would constantly add that back to there. So they have to come back year after year after year to take care of this. And what this shows us is for us as people that our best attempts at closing that gap between us and God will always fall short, that we can never atone well enough based on our goodness. Because remember, our goodness is tainted. It's stained. You know, and we really see this in the beginning. You know, anytime we talk about sin, it's always easy to go back to the beginning because we see this illustrated so well. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, whenever Adam and Eve have sinned, when they had rebelled against God, whenever they, uh, they ate of the fruit that God had encouraged them not to eat of, in verse 7 it says, Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So immediately what happens in this moment is they're recognizing of their vulnerability, they're recognizing of their brokenness, they're recognizing of, of their sinfulness. And so what it says is to try to cover that up is they took fig leaves, and they put those together, and they tried to cover themselves. And I don't know about you, I haven't tried to wear fig leaves much, but I imagine that most of us would not make that our bikini or, or, or bathing suit of choice as we go to the swimming pool, right? That's, that's not what we're going to wear because it's not an adequate covering. So they used this. They thought that if they, if they could just do this themselves, that they could cover up this, this thought that made them shameful, that made them feel guilty, that made them uh, afraid. But then what happens right after this in verse 8? It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden said the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And down in verse 10, whenever God asked them, why did you hide? They said, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Well, but you weren't naked. Didn't, didn't they try to cover themselves? But in that, they recognized that their covering, what they attempted to do on their own, did not cover them enough. And so what, did, what was their response? Their response was fear because their covering was not good enough. And so because their covering was not good enough, what did they do is they hid from God. How often, and for us, man, I have lived this in my life where I've tried and tried and tried to be good enough for God and only to encounter a holy God, be mindful of a holy God, and recognize that I'm still not good enough and run away from God. How many people do we know, or maybe that's us this morning, how many people do we know, or even ourselves, are still running from God because we don't feel like we're covered enough, because we're still acknowledging our shame, we're still acknowledging our guilt, we know that our sin is still heavy on us. 
You know, and for them, they attempted to self-atone. They attempted to cover themselves, and what did they do? They still noticed that it fell short, and what did that do? It drove them away from God. It didn't draw them towards God. Because their own attempts failed. Their own attempts failed. It disconnected them from him. It separated them from truly walking in his presence and knowing him because they were afraid, so they hid. Any time that we try to get to God by self-atoning the gap that we've created from our sin, trying to earn it, following the eightfold path, as Buddhism would say, or the five pillars that Islam would tell us to follow, they're, they're always going to fall short because in the midst of it, it's tainted by selfishness and it's always going to fall back because we among ourselves are not strong enough to create the coverage that we need. They attempted to create the coverage with what they had, and what they had was not adequate. In our sins, when we try to self-atone or make amends for ourselves, it will never be good enough. We will still be afraid. We will still have shame. We will still have guilt, and we will still feel the need to separate ourselves from God. Because whether we acknowledge it or not, we, we know that God is holy, that God sees me where I'm at, that God knows my sin and my suffering. And they knew it wasn't enough. Listen, church, we can never pay for ourselves because self-sufficiency and self-reliance is a part of the problem. That if we are trying to make ourselves right before God, then it is us depending on ourselves to do that work for us. You know, and, and even, even as God administered the law, even as God gave the law to his people, even in being given the law, it was never meant to make people right before God. But it was only to reveal God's holiness and to point them towards a greater work, to point them towards a greater work. In Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 3, it says, For since the law has been but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins. There's that verse again. You know, and I love in this verse in Hebrews 10, it says that for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. You know, I love that it's a shadow because what it shows us is that the light was shining. The law was shining on something else. And what they saw was the shadow of that thing. And so I, I truly believe that in this verse, what it's saying is that what the light was shining on, what it was pointing to was Jesus. That the law was pointing to Christ. That the law was never meant to be this guide to show you how to be better to get closer to God. That the law was meant to be this thing shining light on a greater work. Shining light on a greater sacrifice. Shining white on a, uh, light on, a, uh, on an action, on a, on a sacrifice that would be an acceptable, atoning work between us and a holy God. And so... Our atonement fails because we are sinful and that there is no work that we do separate from faith that is separate from the flesh. That every work we do separate from faith is going to be driven by the flesh. It's going to be driven by our selfishness, driven by our own desires. And so if that is where our atonement fails, where is it that his atonement succeeds? And this is what we see as we continue in Hebrews chapter 10, 
picking up in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You know, the thing that stuck out to me here is the posture at which these two uh, entities worked. You know, in verse 11, we saw that it says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But in verse 12, what does it tell us? In verse 12, it says, but when Christ had offered for all time, all time, a single sacrifice, he sat down. He sat down because Christ took this place of rest. Christ took this place of completion that the Bible tells us that he sat at the right hand of God because the work was done. When Christ came, every bit of sin, every bit of the the penalty of sin fell on the shoulders of Jesus that had been prophesied through the Old Testament, that had been told of that he would bear our stripes, that he would bear our burdens, that he would be broken and beaten for our sin. And so the entire weight of the penalty of our sin rested on the shoulders of Jesus. And he took every bit of that to the cross with him as the sacrifice, as the perfect sacrifice that not only was he the, a man who was sinless, that it required a perfect spotless lamb on the cross uh, as being sacrificed for the atonement of that sin to pay the penalty for that sin, but also because we believe that Jesus was in essence a holy God, that he was God, that God himself stepped into the picture to fix the problem. That God himself stepped into the picture to fix our problem. And it's because of that there is no other sacrifice required. Because in Christ, when our faith is in Jesus and that atoning work, that the the penalty has been paid. That the price has been paid. that That it has been taken care of. And for us to ever do anything requiring another sacrifice would to call the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross insufficient. You know, and, and, and I love the brothers and sisters in, in some of the other denominations of Christianity, and there are a lot of things that we would agree with on, on a lot of issues. But any time that we believe that the body of Christ is broken daily, we are saying that the original sacrifice of Jesus was not good enough. You know, when the blood is spilled out daily weekly you know because there are brothers and sisters in in the faith that that believe that the bread is transubstantiated it is turned into the actual body of christ and they would say that every time it is broken is like that sacrifice repeating itself every time church the bible tells us clearly that the sacrifice was once and for all and that the body of jesus never needs to be broken again that the body of christ never needs to be broken again and anything we do beyond that is symbolic to help us fix our eyes on what christ has done for us and that's a beautiful thing because if the body of jesus had to be broken day after day after day for my sin then what kind of hope and confidence is that for us to walk in 
Man, God not be, must not be so great, and that sacrifice must not have been so weighty if it has to happen again and again and again, whether that's by some religious uh, activity that we do or whether it's by us trying to earn it ourselves, that it is always falling short if that's what we depend on. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, it says, That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself. God stepped into the situation to fix it. Romans 8, 3 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh and could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. So not only in the likeness of sinful flesh, but for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh through Jesus. God has done. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has provided a way and God himself is taking care of those requirements for us. Because we continue to see the mercy of God pushed to the forefront of what his plan is in redemptive history for his people. That God is stepping in. And that we know that God does not love his people on the grounds that Jesus died for them. But that Jesus died for them because God loves his people. Jesus died for Christians because God loves Christians. God doesn't love Christians because God died for Jesus died for them. For us, God's love is the cause of Jesus' death, not the result. Because God was stepping into our space, fixing a problem that we could never fix on our own, and that was the space between us and a holy God. And we see that even back when we go back to Genesis 3, that God told them, that you will surely die if you eat of this fruit. Genesis 3.21 tells us that as they admitted what they had done wrong, as God found them, asked them, why were you hiding? They responded. He began to lay out his plan. From that moment on, how things would be, that things would be different now because sin has entered the world. And in Genesis 3.21, it says that the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife Garments of skins and clothed them. What did we read earlier? That the garments that they attempted to make for themselves left them fearful, left them ashamed, left them guilty. And what does a holy God do? You know, and I've said this before, but it's been the comments been made that it was uh, that that it was unfair for a holy God to cast Adam and Eve out of this perfect garden that they had created because of one mistake. But the reality is, is that God was merciful in that moment because he had already told them that if you ate of this fruit, that you would surely die. But what does God do? God clothes them and God sends them on their way. God clothes them. He accomplished a task that they didn't accomplish on their own. Remember, because they were ashamed, because they hid, because their clothing was not adequate. And so what does God do? What does a holy God do? We see this sacrificial system entered into creation and entered into history here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Because for the skin of something to be used, something had to die, right? Blood had to be spilled. So God himself stepped into this space, made an atonement for the sin that Adam and Eve had created, and used that atonement to cover them. 
hiding them from their shame, hiding them from their guilt, hiding them from the mistakes that they had made. And continuing on in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, down to verse 18, we see this truth continue to be spoken about. It says, for by a single offering, he was perfected for all time. Uh, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Because this church is what we have to understand. And this is the the, the crux or the crucial moment that we live from. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. When we have put our faith in Jesus... That offering has been made. And that we live in a way in an understanding of what he's done. You know, and he says, he says that I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Because he tells us when we are in Christ, it, we are no longer being uh, condemned by the law. That we are no longer being condemned by the law. But we are being guided by the law. That it, would be, that it would no longer be a law condemning us, but a guide leading us. That no longer under the penalty of the law, but still under the guidance of the law. Because in Christ, the penalty is paid. The penalty for the law has been paid. So now we use the law as a guide. Now we use the law as the influence at which we live from, as we love our neighbors and love our God. Remember, Jesus tells us that the whole law is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so our worship of God and the way that we love our brothers and sisters in this world or other image bearers is through an understanding that God has paid the penalty for the law, and now we are living from that. We are living from that. And so why does this matter for us? Why does this matter for us? Church, the thing that we have to understand is that the moment that Jesus died on the cross, that our penalty for sin was paid, that the penalty of sin for eternal sin was transferred from from us to Christ and it's because he was a holy God that he defeated sin, that he defeated death, that he defeated the enemy. And so this matters for us. This is important for us, church, because if we are settling in our sin, whether that's because we don't feel like we can ever move past it or because we can't ever do enough good to make right by it or because we're comfortable in it or that we're living in fear that's keeping us from living for God or we're living in shame or guilt or, we have in, or if we're just not stepping in line with the work that God has called us to, if we're doing any of those things, it's probably because it's for us we have not fully trusted in the atoning work of God through Christ, that we have not truly understood that, we have not truly lived that because the thing that we have to understand is that the atonement or what God has done for us in closing that gap between us and a holy God is not our excuse to sin, but it is our invitation to truly live. And I love that the, the narrative of the Bible brings this story and this idea of atonement together so beautifully 
Because in the Old Testament, if you'll read the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus, you can see tons of it. In the Old Testament, it uses the word. Remember, there's, there's different languages. The, the Bible is in three different languages. And in the Old Testament, it was a different language than the New Testament. But in the Old Testament language, the word used, the English translators translated as atonement. That word that was used there, they translated as atonement. And it's used over a hundred times in the Old Testament in regards to the law, in regards to the sacrificial system that was used. But church, in the New Testament, that word does not show up at all. The idea is there. The practice is there. The work is there. But the word itself does not appear one time in the English translation. The word atonement does not show up. So why is this? When the Old Testament, the, the, the Hebrew word that was used, it meant to cover. It meant to hide. And so in that, the understanding they had is when they made atonement for sin, they sacrificed for sin, they were just hiding that sin for a time. They were just covering that sin for a time. But I love that in the New Testament, that even though they're speaking of the same action, but a different word is used, a different Greek word is used, I love the words that the translators chose to use because they didn't choose to use the word atonement which for them would have communicated this idea of, of covering or just kind of putting away for a time. They chose to use words like canceled. They chose to use words like remove. They chose to use the words forgive. They chose to use the word reconcile. They chose to use the word redeemed. They chose to use the word washed away, remembers no more, abolished. These are the words that Jesus brings with his new sacrifice. It's not just a covering. It's not just a, a putting away for a time, but it is an abolishment. It is a cancellation. It is a, a destruction of this penalty that is held against his people. And that's the confidence that we rest in. And that's the confidence that we walk in obedience to every single day of our life. And it is that hope that we bring to the people of the world around us, in our communities, in our circles, in our families. That is the hope that we draw people into, that God chose to do a work through Jesus that didn't just hide my sin and the effects of my sin and the guilt of my sin and the shame of my sin, but he chose to abolish the effects of my sin. He chose to cancel the record of debt held against me. That's what he has chosen to do for us. And it's within that message that I believe whenever David is saying in Psalm 32, 7, he says, you are my hiding place. And he says, you preserve me from trouble. But he says, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. And you know what? I truly believe that shout of deliverance is the shout of deliverance that we can live in as Christians today. It's the shout that Jesus gave in John chapter nine, uh, John chapter uh, 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 Mark chapter 15, verse 37 says he let out a loud cry. And in John chapter nine, verse 30, I believe that loud cry was it is finished. That the work is done. Stop trying to earn your way to God. Put your faith in me and I will take care of that. I will give you my righteousness. I will impute or I will pass on my righteousness to you. And so that when God sees you, he does not see you in your sinfulness. He sees me. He sees his son, Jesus. That's why the Bible tells us that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Because in the Old Testament, Abraham was a mediator for Lot and his wife. Whenever God was seeking to show judgment on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, that, that Moses was a mediator between God and the, uh, the 
people of Israel that, but they still, he still had to have constant new mediators. That priest had to be mediators between God and man all the way up until when Jesus offered himself once and for all so that sin was abolished. There was no need for another mediator. Jesus was the ultimate mediator. And it's in that hope that we rest and that Christ has made a way for us. And so the challenge for us is what do we do with that freedom as Christians? Galatians 5.13 says, For you who are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So because Christ has atoned, because Christ has reestablished us with God at one with, that God has put us back together through Jesus, when we have put our faith in Jesus, how do we use that new freedom? That we're out from under the bondage of sin. Well, the first thing we do, church, and and these two things, and I'll be done. The first thing we do is that we not continue to live in that sin. The first thing we do, I think, is we confess that in response to the atonement of God on our behalf, that we confess that confession does not mean perfection, but confession gives us direction. That through confession, we get new direction away from our sin. Remember, that word repentance means to turn away. That we are actively seeking to step away from the sin that entangles us, that weighs us down. That we would use our freedom to confess. That we would uncover our sin to allow God to cover it. And that we would know that sin thrives in the darkness. Sin thrives in the darkness. And even though we aren't acknowledging that there is sin in our life, even though maybe we're not acknowledging that there's something that keeps pushing against us, weighing us down, entangling us, as Hebrews would say, that it is there. And until we begin to acknowledge it, it will continue to grow. It will continue to devour us. Even in our freedom, it will devour us. And so how do we walk in that freedom, church? I believe it is so important that we daily confess. God, forgive us. What does the Bible say? He's faithful and just to forgive. Ask for forgiveness. To truly enjoy and live in that atoning work. And the second thing is to obey. That in light of that atoning work, when we have put our faith in Jesus, that we would step. Because the I mean, because uh, we understand that where there is no change, there is no real confession. There is no real repentance. There is no real evidence of what God is doing. That faith without works is dead, remember? And so that if we have truly experienced this change, it doesn't mean that it's this huge, massive work, but that there's progression. I believe with all my heart in progressive sanctification, that God takes us from here and he grows us. That the moment we become a believer, that our life doesn't magically transform into these holy theologians that just roll through town and just share the gospel with everybody and just change lives uh, moment to moment. Uh, I pray that God would get us to those moments, but it's on our, the time at which God is progressively working through us. But it still requires us taking active steps of obedience to truly live in that, to truly experience what God is trying to do for us. That we, if we trust in this work, it should lead us into worship of God. It should lead us into loving others and not to, to gain anything, but in light of what we have gained. That everything we do as Christians is not to gain something, but it's in light of what we've already gained. So it's not an excuse to sin. It's not an excuse to be lazy. It's not an excuse to always have excuses for why we're either doing or not doing the things, you know, whether it's sins of, uh, of active sins or it's sins of omission where we know that there's something God has gifted us to do or calling us to do that we're actively choosing not to do, then that is just as much sin as committing adultery or, or, or lying or bearing false witness, whatever it might be, that 
if we have been atoned for by God, then we have been given the freedom to walk in obedience and to see God's work in the midst of that. So church, I pray that if I leave you with any two things, it would be this, that in the understanding of what Christ has done for us, that we would walk in confession and obedience in all our lives, to continue to enjoy that atonement, to continue to enjoy that work, to continue to understand that Christ has died on the cross for me and for you, and that he offers us a way, a way to a holy God. And that way to a holy God is not by some old sacrificial system, and it's not by self-atonement. It's not about self-work because we will, be, we will fail. Our atonement for ourselves will never be good enough because it is tainted by our sin. And I believe if we could truly walk in that, that that's where we start to see change in our families. That's where we start to see change in our friendships. That's where we start to see change in our communities. Is if we would truly believe and receive that truth of what Christ has done and what he plans to do through us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness. God, I, I thank you, Lord. As, God, this can be such a, a daunting task to take truths about who you are, Lord, and for us to talk about those things. And, and Lord, even in talking about those things, see where those things fit into our lives. God, I know sometimes when we talk about spiritual realities, they can seem so distant from us. But God, I pray that we would understand that those spiritual realities, what you have done for us, the sin that wants to overtake us and entangle us, all of these things, this war that is happening in the spiritual realm, God, that all of these things are closer to us than the very, God, the very elements that make up our bodies, God. God, and I pray, God, that we live in such a culture of God, of selfless, selfishness and, and Lord, self-exaltation and self, self-identification and, and, Lord, self-interest. God, that I pray that we could see that true living comes from you when we have put our stakes in you, when we have put all our chips in your basket. God, when we have just given ourselves over to you to understand that the work that you do is the only work that sustains, that your work is the only work that fixes the problem that we, that our, 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 our ancestors, Adam and Eve, created back in the garden, God, that we know that if any people could have done right by you and your standards, it could have been them, but they didn't. But even in that, God, you showed mercy and you leaned in and you fixed the problem. Lord, even if it was temporary, you used that moment to point to a greater work. God, and the beauty of what we get to celebrate today is that we get to live in that greater work, that we have record of that greater work, that in Jesus, Lord, you have revealed to us what is a shadow to those. God, you have made it clear to us that you came, God, with us in the flesh, bearing our sin, bearing our shame, bearing our guilt. God, and you made a covering for us. God, that not only paid the penalty for our sin, but God, you intend to cover our guilt. God, you tell us that, that you, you are not holding our shame against us. Father God, and I pray that we would not be limited God, whether it's by taking advantage of this grace or not truly embracing it for what it is, God, that you would just challenge us to move forward.
God, that we would not be continue to be babes in Christ, but we would continue to grow and to seek you and to allow you to use us in a mighty way to bring this message of hope. God, because the majority of the world is living their lives trying to earn your goodness, trying to earn their place, trying to close that gap between themselves and you. And every time they try to jump that chasm, they fall short and sink deeper into the pit of despair and just continue to find themselves at places where they tell themselves they'll never make it. God, help us reveal to people, Lord, that your son Jesus is that bridge. God, that your son Jesus closes that gap, that your son Jesus has done a one work once and for all, a single sacrifice for all time for the forgiveness of sins. And where the forgiveness of sins is, there is no need for another sacrifice. Father God, challenge us in confession and obedience in everything that we do. Let us be the people that you've called us to be. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.